Let's pray together. Lord, would you be with us now as we sit at your feet, and we ask that you would bless this message in spite of the one who brings it, for we ask in Jesus' name, amen. So if you're visiting us for the first time, we're continuing our vision series that we do at the beginning of every new year. And the point of this series is to look at the various components of our vision. And if by chance you're unaware of what that vision is, uh, here it is right up here. You have our vision? Jess, come on, hurry up, hurry up. (laughs) There it is. Okay, so today we're going to take a look at the second bullet point where it talks about selflessly investing in personal relationships, which is really such an odd way of putting it. What exactly does it mean to selflessly invest? It's so oxymoronic because the whole terminology of investing in something assumes a personal beneficiary return for those who invest, but yet you selflessly invest? What, that's, what is all that about? Well, in actuality, that's simply the... Bible's way of describing Christian relationships. And as we take a look at Acts 21, we're going to see a case study of Christians living out this very idea of what selfless, invested relationships look like. And as we do, we're going to see three characteristics of selfless, invested relationships. And that is, number one, Christian relationships must be charitable in their judgments. Number two, Christian relationships must prioritize God's will. And finally, Christian relationships must model themselves after Jesus. Okay, so let's quickly begin. Christian relationships must be charitable in their judgments. So our passage has Paul going from place to place, city to city. The man is on the move. And the reason for his extensive traveling is because he is finishing up what would later be known as his third missionary journey, which brings to attention something about Paul that you need to be aware of, and that is Paul is a missionary. Yes, he was an apostle of Christ. Yes, he wrote over half of the New Testament. And yes, he did spiritual things and he was perhaps the greatest theologian the church has ever had. But at his core, first and foremost, Paul was a missionary with a capital M, which is why he says this about himself in Romans 15, verse 20, quote, my ambition has always been to preach the good news where the name of Christ has never been heard rather than where a church has already been started by someone else. See, Paul is all about sharing the gospel and spreading the gospel to as many people as possible, especially those who've never heard it before. And it is in this context of Paul doing his missionary work that he's in a frenzy to go from place to place without stopping, almost to the point of not catching his breath. But if you were paying attention, you'll notice that there were specific two places where he does stop for prolonged periods of time. The first is spoken of in verses 3 to 6, which is the city of Tyre. And then the other place is spoken of in verses 8 through 12, which is the city of Caesarea. And the question is, what was so special about these two places to where Paul is willing to restrain his ambitious missionary endeavors and spend some prolonged time with the people there? The answer, charitable judgments. Charitable judgments. Let me explain by asking you to first consider the first place that he spent a prolonged place in, and that is Tyre. What makes Tyre so significant is because the church that was there was created as a direct result of severe persecution that the Christians who made up this church had to endure a few years back in Jerusalem. In other words, the Christians who started this church and made up its membership 
did so because they were being severely persecuted for their faith in their hometown of Jerusalem. In fact, this persecution was so bad, where we, this is where we had our very first Christian martyr, a young man by the name of Stephen. And just so that you can understand the full picture, let me read to you the passage of Scripture that actually tells us what went on during this persecution. Starting in verse 1 of Acts chapter 8, we read, Saul was one of the witnesses, and he agreed completely with the killing of Stephen. A great wave of persecution began that day, sweeping over the church in Jerusalem, and all the believers, except the apostles, were scattered through the regions of Judea and Samaria. Some devout men came and buried Stephen with great mourning. But Saul was going everywhere to destroy the church. He went from house to house, dragging both men and women to throw them in to prison. This was a persecution that eventually sparked the creation of this church in Tyre. And if you notice, the main person responsible for persecuting all these Christians was a man by the name of Saul. Now, if you're not aware, you should know by now that this Saul would have a radical conversion experience and become transformed as who? The Apostle Paul. That's right. The same Apostle Paul that we just read about, which means Paul is visiting a bunch of people who just a few years ago he was trying to wipe out, either put in prison or killed. Now, let me ask you, how would you feel if you were one of these Christians in Tyre? How would you feel if one of your pastors or elders came up to you and said, hey, we got a missionary on his way to Jerusalem, and he needs a couple days to stay in your homes, eat your food, sleep in your bed. Would you mind letting this guy stay with you and show some Christian hospitality? Oh, by the way, he's also the same guy who put some of your parents in prison. He's the same guy who might have orchestrated the death of your brother or sister. How would you feel? If you were those Christians in Tyre, would you welcome this man with open arms? Would you be like, hey, come on in, brother? Probably not. In fact, I would probably argue be virtually impossible to extend any sort of genuine kindness or grace to this man. And yet, consider what it says in verse 5. When our days there in Tyre were ended, we departed and went on our journey, and they all, with wives and children, accompanied us until we were outside the city, kneeling down on the beach. We prayed and said farewell to one another. What? In reflecting on this very verse, pastor scholar Warren Wearsby writes this, quote, It is touching to see how the believers had to come to love Paul, though they had known him only a week. Though they had come to love Paul, Did we just read this correctly? How in the world could these Christians in Tyre, who were victims of this man, end up loving this man with such a... It's crazy. Hold on to that thought as we consider the second place where Paul stayed in, the city of Caesarea. Now, what makes Caesarea so significant is because of the person to whom he stays with while there. Who is the guy? A man by the name of Philip the Evangelist. Who is Philip the Evangelist? Well, if you read Acts chapter 6, you come to discover he's the same Philip that we come to find was one of the very first deacons of the New Testament church. And do you know who else was one of the very first New Testament deacons? Stephen. That's right, the same person whom Paul murdered. Let me ask you, how would you feel towards someone who murdered someone you went to church with? And not just someone who you went to church with, but someone who you served alongside of and shared in the trenches of ministry. Someone who you prayed for, who prayed for you. Someone who you shared your deepest and darkest vulnerable secrets and confessions of sin and they to you. People who you ate together with, raised kids with. How would you feel? How would you feel if that person was in your place? Would you be willing to bring them into your home and stay with your children as Philip did? 
again. Pastor Warren Wearsby writes, Since Philip had been an associate of Stephen, and Paul hadn't taken part in Stephen's death, this must have been an interesting meeting. Yeah, I'll say. (laughs) So here you have two situations where Paul takes a prolonged stay with two groups of people who at best should be dubious and at worst should have such vengeful, angry, hateful attitude towards. And yet we see the very opposite. These people are kind. They're generous, they're charitable, they're loving, they're welcoming towards Paul. Why? And again, I tell you, charitable judgments. Charitable judgments. What is a charitable judgment? Consider this definition by Ken Sandy, who's the president of Peacemaker Ministry, an organization that focuses on reconciliation. He says this, quote, Making a charitable judgment means that out of love for God, you strive to believe the best about others until you have facts to prove otherwise. In other words, if you can reasonably interpret facts in two possible ways, God calls you to embrace the positive interpretation over the negative, or at least to postpone making any judgment at all until you can acquire conclusive facts. What is he saying? Well, I'll tell you what he's not saying. He's not saying that you should turn a blind eye to sin, thereby encouraging and enabling someone to keep on sinning and being cruel, all in the name of Christian love. Read again that portion where he says in the quote, he says, if you can reasonably interpret the situation to where you can be rationally justified in looking at a person in a very positive way, you do so. In other words, showing charitable judgment does not mean we suspend critical thinking or we make judgments contrary to facts if someone is doing or saying something evil then we must call it for what it is and confront that person for what they are doing and what they are saying but if you're hearing gossip if you're hearing secondhand knowledge or if you're observing an action that could be interpreted positively or negatively god is saying you always choose to interpret in the most positive optimistic charitable way possible that's what he's saying You know, one recent example that was the complete opposite of what I'm talking about is what we saw in the news a few weeks back with the thing that happened up in D.C. Remember those Catholic students, the Covington High School kids? When that video first went out, excuse me, everyone was condemning the kids, especially that one kid who they say was disrespectful towards that Native American drum beater, to where even the mayor of these kids' hometown was saying, This is a disgrace. These kids will be disciplined to the full effects of the law, right? And even like media pundits were like, oh, that kid, he just want to punch him in the face, right? And then a couple days later, more video came out and it showed the full picture. And all of a sudden, these kids who looked like they were the villains ended up becoming the victims, right? David Brooks, who's a New York Times uh, journalist, reflected on that incident and he wrote this quote in this technology stereotype is more salient than persons in this technology a single moment is more important than a life story in this technology a main activity is proving to the world that your type is morally superior to the other type the covington case was such a blatant rush to judgment it was powdered by such crude prejudice and social stereotyping i'm hoping it will be an important pivot point i'm hoping that at least a few people start thinking about norms of how decent people should behave on these platforms end quote you know when i read that quote i was so discouraged especially when he says at the end part where he says, I hope someone will rise up and be different. And the reason why I was discouraged is because of the fact he shouldn't have to hope because the hope assumes that it does not yet exist, right? 
but it does exist, or at least it should. We Christians should be the one showing the world what this man is hoping for. We should be the ones extending charitable judgments. Christian, remember what our mission is? It is to bless the world. And one of the primary ways we do bless the world is by extending charitable judgments towards one another and especially to those outside of the church. Where instead of assuming the worst and instead of assuming that we can read people's motives and always fish for all the negative part and just ignore all the good things that these people might have and we just say, oh, I told you so, this person is evil, this person is messed up. We instead fight for this person in our hearts, in our minds and say, could it be that maybe they are decent people? Could it be that they're not necessarily doing anything wrong? Could it be that maybe it's my interpretation that's off? Like our dear brother Hanu masterfully just shared in his testimony, right? Christian, are you doing that? Are you being selfless and putting to death the temptation of always assuming the worst about other people and their actions, thinking that you know their motives when in fact you don't? Because I tell you, if you choose not to do this, all you're doing is you're recycling the prejudice, all the hatred that makes this world kind of hard to live in right now. But if you are willing to embrace this notion of charitable judgments, you can create something that can neutralize all the vitriol, all the hatred, all the animosity, and actually create relationships that can make this world better off for everybody else. I mean, that's what the people in Tyre did. That's what the people in Caesarea did. And as a result, it created a social environment that was so beautiful to where they were able to have deep, loving relationships with a man who at one point wanted to hate them towards destruction. In fact, the love that they fostered with Paul was so deep that it almost backfired on them. To where it almost threatened not only their relationship to Paul, but it threatened their relationship to God himself. What do I mean? Well, let me explain by going to my next point. Christian relationship must prioritize God's will. You know, aside from Paul spending substantial time in both of these places with the people who live there, there's something else that these two groups of people have in common, which is spoken of in verses 4, 11, and 12. And that is both groups of people beg Paul. They beg Paul for him not to go to further his mission towards Jerusalem. Why? Because through the gift of spiritual prophecy, they knew what was coming towards Paul. They foresaw what he would have to face in Jerusalem, which was severe suffering, where people would plot to try and kill him, where people would falsely accuse him, where he would get falsely arrested, and it would begin the domino effect that it would eventually lead to his own death. And as a result, they begged Paul, Beg Paul, don't go to Jerusalem, man. Don't leave us. Stay with us. In fact, even those who were traveling with him, his long-term companions, his disciples, like Luke, who wrote Acts, he joined in in begging Paul not to go after he was hearing all this prophecy. Verse 12, listen again to what he said. When we heard this, we and the people there urged him not to go to Jerusalem. So not only are Paul's newfound friends begging him not to go, but even his old-time buddies are begging him, don't go, man. Stay with us. Stay here. Stay safe. It got so point that they were weeping, right? Like ugly cry, weeping with snot and tears everywhere. And it just broke Paul's heart. Verse 13, Paul answered, what are you doing? Weeping and breaking my heart. For I'm ready not only to be in prison, but even to die in Jerusalem for the name of Jesus Christ. Now, when you first read this statement from Paul, you can easily think, man, Paul is kind of crazy. What is he, one of those 
radical religious zealots who purposely wants to kill himself? He really wants to go out in a blaze of glory like this? Is he that psycho? No, he's not psycho. Because if you read a little bit of Paul's personal biography, specifically his past, you would come to discover that he's simply fulfilling his call that God gave him. The call God gave him. Do you guys know what that is? Acts chapter 9, the risen Jesus is talking to one of his servants, Ananias. And Jesus says this about Paul. But the Lord said, go for Saul is my chosen instrument to take my message to the Gentiles and to the kings as well as to the people of Israel. And I will show him how much he must suffer for my name's sake. Paul was called by God to preach the gospel to Jews and to kings. And those were the very same people waiting for him in Jerusalem. And Paul said, I have to go. I have to go. Because I, that's where God's called me to go. And not only has God called me to preach the gospel to these people, but he's also called me to suffer as I do all this. <laughs> now, what does any of this have to do with us personally? What's the takeaway? The takeaway is this. Listen carefully. When it comes to your relationship, Christian, God's will takes priority over your relationships. When it comes to your relationship, Christian, God's will takes priority over those relationships. And that includes God's calling upon your life. God's will includes his calling upon your life. Do you guys know that every single one of you Christians in here, you guys have a calling from God? Actually, you have two callings. You have your primary calling, where God summons you into a personal saving relationship with him. But number two, you have a secondary calling where he calls you to do something and go somewhere and be among certain types of people to further the work and his presence on the earth, right? To extend the borders of his kingdom. And here's the thing. You must answer these two callings, even if it sometimes means you have to separate from people who you deeply love, deeply cherish. You know, when I was a Christian in college, I got converted in college, one of the things that I first did in my first year as a Christian is that I would visit all the various churches that my friends would go to. And I remember one Sunday morning, I visited a church of my friend who was African-American, so he took me to his African-American church. And one of the things that I remember to this day about that service is that there was a woman singing an offering song. And I was somewhat kind of mildly offended at the song. Why? Well, because it wasn't a song that you would expect to hear at a church. It wasn't a gospel song. It wasn't a hymn. It wasn't a praise. It was a song that I heard on the radio. And I don't mean Christian radio. It was a secular song. It was a non-Christian song. Right? And you think, what was it? Metallica? No, it wasn't like Metallica or anything like that. What song? Well, it was actually kind of a beautiful, sweet song. Anyone in here heard this song called If I Could? Sung by um, Regina Bell. Later on, Barbara Streisand. You guys heard of it? No? Yeah, okay. Okay. There actually exists. You can Google it tonight, right? And the song is basically kind of, I guess it's kind of like a love song between a parent and a child. The way it's written sounds like it's more written by a, a, a mom to her daughter or son. And, and one significant moving part of the song, the lyrics say, say this, If I could, I would try to shield your innocence from time, but the part of life I gave you isn't mine. I'll watch you grow so I can let you You know, it wasn't until I became a father for the first time that I understood the impact of those words and why that church allowed this woman to sing this song. Because one of the biggest struggles that I had when Kara was first born was accepting this idea that one day God is going to call my beautiful Kara to a place in his kingdom that's so far away from her mother and me. And I got to tell you, with each new child, it got worse 
the struggle became even more real. You're probably thinking, why do you have so many kids then, right? I know why, God, why did you give me so many kids? Right? It got more painful. And every time I try to go to the Bible, see if I can find a loophole, find a way to see if I can avoid this inevitable sadness, it was almost as if God was saying through the Bible, uh, pfft, not going to happen. Accept it. Yes, I will call your children away for my will, for their call, for my mission into this world. And I had to accept it. And parents, you have to accept it too. Whether it be because of their schooling, their career, their marriages, or their mission, God will summon your children away from you so that he could fulfill his call upon their lives. And folks, if this is true of our biological families, how much more would this be true of our spiritual families? Some of you guys have been in here long enough to know that God has already been doing this, right? We all can name names of people who were once part of this fellowship, part of this family, and they're no longer with us anymore. People who we worshiped with, people who we prayed for, cried with, people who we had at our homes, who they invited in their homes, and now they're gone, right? They're way gone. They're not part of this community anymore. And you know what? That hurts, and it's sad. Maybe some of you guys in a couple years, maybe in a few months, you'll have to answer the call. And as painful and as hurtful as it's going to be for Sarah and I and for the rest of your brothers and sisters here, you have to go. We can't stop you. And yet, we try, don't we? You know, one of the most pitiful things that churches so often do is the very thing that the people in these various two places try to do. We try to hold on to people, right? And what makes it worse, we use God as a way to get involved in the situation, thinking that he wants us to stay. You notice how these people were prophesying, right? And they were using the prophecy that God gave them as a way to entice Paul to not obey his call. How often will we say things like, you know, I've been praying for you, and I know you're thinking of moving to Georgia. I know you're thinking of going to Texas. I know you're thinking of going to Nova. But I've been praying, and I'm pretty sure God doesn't want you to go. I've been reading scripture, Right? And I see how we're called to be committed to local church. Are you really sure this is God's will for you? You do that, folks, and you're going to meet the same demise as Paul's friends did. Eventually, God's going to work on you, mess you up, and you're going to end up saying the same things that they said in verse 14. And since he would not be persuaded, we ceased and said, let the will of the Lord be done. Let the will of the Lord be done. Christian, God calls us to selflessly invest in one another. That means I help you grow, you help me grow. And maybe in the midst of that, we let each other go when God in his perfect providence sends us away from one another for a season, maybe until we're dead. And that's hard. That's so hard. And the question that we have to ask is how can we get through with this? How can we obey the Lord and not disobey? And this leads me to my final point. Christians' relationship must model themselves after Jesus. One more time, verse 13, it reads, Then Paul said, What are you doing, weeping and breaking my heart? For I'm ready not only to be in prison, but even to die in Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus. As I said a moment ago, this is Paul reminding his friends of his calling. 
And as I said just moments before that, that it included his suffering, right? Now, that is such an odd thing for Paul to say. Because what Paul is essentially saying is that, look, God has called me to suffer. He's planned it out so that I would suffer. How would that be possible? Why would that make sense? I mean, it's okay for Paul to suffer accidentally, unintentionally. But for Paul to say, no, God has actually proactively, intentionally planned for me to suffer, that makes no sense, especially for us parents in here. Parents, let me ask you, how many of you would plan for your children to suffer? None of us, right? We always try to plan our children's life so that they can avoid suffering, not go through it. And yet Paul says that's what God has called him to do. Why? Luke 9, 23 reads, Then he, Jesus, said to the crowd, If any of you wants to be my follower, you must give up your own way, take up your cross daily, and follow me. Just in case you're not aware, this is Jesus talking, and who is he addressing? Anyone who would follow him. That includes all you Christians in here. What is Jesus saying? Part of what it means to being a follower of Jesus is learning how to share in the sufferings of Jesus. Part of what it means to be a Christian means understanding the sufferings Jesus went through for you by you suffering yourself. So really what Paul is saying here, saying that God has called him to suffer, that's not uniquely Paul's calling. That's every Christian's calling. You and I, Christian, are called to suffer for our faith. And one specific way that we model the sufferings of Christ and our own sufferings is by willing to separate from our most precious and cherished relationships because that's what Jesus did. Do you know that in order for Jesus to fulfill his mission, he had to be willing to separate from his most cherished relationship of all? What relationship am I talking about? His relationship with his father, God the father, right? The scriptures tell us before Jesus was Jesus, he was God the son, who for all eternity past had a rich, robust, loving, unparalleled loving relationship with his father. But because yet his father called him to do the work of the gospel, Jesus had to come into this world and ultimately suffer and die on the cross so that the sins of those who put their faith in him as Lord and Savior could be freed from sin and death. But yet it would come at a great cost. For on the cross, what did Jesus cry? My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? In reflecting on this statement of Christ, Tim Keller says, when he, Jesus says, my God, my God, why have you forgotten me? Why have you forsaken me? Jesus lost his relationship with the Father so that we could have a relationship with God as Father. Jesus was forgotten so that we could be remembered forever from everlasting to everlasting. Jesus was willing to suffer the loss of his most important relationship so that you and I could gain the most important relationship. A relationship, by the way, which none of us deserve because God, in his Justice has every right to criticize us and to judge us and to condemn us because of our sins, but he does not. He responds with true charity, real grace. Unlike our critical judgments, which is totally off, totally unfounded, he is not in his judgment towards us. He has the right to critically judge and condemn us, but he does not. But instead, he responds with love and mercy. That's what the gospel teaches us. And when you understand this gospel, two things are going to happen. Number one, 
The next time you encounter someone in this church, in your family, in your workplace, whoever, who you could just assume the worst and judge critically, you won't. Because you remember, if Jesus could have done that to me legitimately, then I cannot do that illegitimately to somebody else. Because I am no different. I am far worse than the way I would criticize this person. Christ could have criticized me genuinely, legitimately, justifiably, but he did not. So how could I be critical and uncharitable and assume the worst about this person when Jesus could have done the same thing, rightly so, but yet he didn't? See, when you get that, that fosters a platform, a social environment for you, instead of having a critical attitude towards this person, to actually start loving this person. And building a relationship with this person that is so deep, so profound, that it will prepare you to have a relationship with them in such a way that when the time comes for God to take them out of your life, as much as it will be painful to do, you'll be ready to do that. You know why? Because then you remember, ah, but that's what Jesus did for me. He gave up his most crucial relationship with the Father so I could have the Father. And so I can let this person go who is so important to me, who's so vital to my ministry and to my community, right? So that others could be benefited in their relationship with them. That's what the gospel does. See, when you understand the gospel, that changes everything. It changes how you relate. It changes how you foster community in the body. But the question that I have to end with is now, do you understand that gospel by the way that you treat each other with charitable judgments and always putting God's will ahead of those relationships when the time is necessary to do so? Let's pray. Father, we ask that you would help us to really understand today's message so that we can live it out and become the community you call us to be. For we ask in Jesus' name, amen.